In the past few decades, it's been like watching the world shrink right in front of us. Once considered key to increasing trade, fostering peace, and raising the standard of living, globalization is now seeing a pushback. Globalization has turned our planet into this super connected place where everything's buzzing. Borders, they've become kind of blurry. Businesses, oh man, they're popping up all over the globe. And tech, well, it's like the ultimate game changer, making even the most remote spots possible market hotspots. But the winds of change are blowing once again. Now the issue was raised at Davos with new data showing world exports and imports are now in retreat for the first time since the Second World War. Partially driving this retreat, nationalistic policies and protectionism. Enter globalization. While it might sound like we're hitting the brakes, it's a bit more complicated than that. Countries are revisiting the whole global trade angle thanks to the volatile past few years we've witnessed. From rising trade tensions, evolving geopolitics, and supply chain crises driven by COVID. Yeah, the the showdown with Russia. You also have uh, uh, supply chain issues post-pandemic, tensions with China. It's got everyone wondering what globalization will look like in the 21st century. We're moving from that whole worldwide party mode to a chill regional hangout scene. If you're listening to this podcast on a smartphone, there is a good chance that you are looking at a device that was made in Vietnam. Mobile phones are Vietnam's number one export, generating export revenues of more than $45 billion in 2017. So while global trade has stagnated, Vietnam's trade has soared to 190% of GDP in 2017 from 70% in 2007. So how did Vietnam emerge as a juggernaut in manufacturing? On this episode of Things Have Changed podcast, we spotlight Vietnam and how the country has anchored itself as a critical global trade partner in Asia and painting a fresh narrative of prosperity in this era of globalization. Dive with us into the heart of Vietnam's economic renaissance. If you'd known how important the technology economy was 20 years ago, would you have done things differently? The internet, cell phones, the cloud, and data. Things have changed. We're here to talk about it. Hi. I'm Jed. Hi, I'm Shikhar. Welcome to Things Have Changed, your new economics and technology podcast. Just today, this morning actually, I had come for my first football game slash soccer game for you Americans early, early in the morning. And I'm freaking tired. Were you in the starting 11 or a sub? I already <laughs> know the answer. Even before Dude, of course question. I'm starting 11. Sure what are you talking just... about? What are you talking about? I am, dude, I am literally messy when he was still like 21. That's literally every dad, every uncle that has ever played football like ever, even for like two hours in their whole lifetime will say that. You know, before I got that knee injury, I was basically <laughs> Ronaldo. Well, 
all jokes, all jokes aside, I do see a lot more parents these days pushing their kids to like be really yeah, good at football. Now that Messi's here. Also Project Mbappe. They're, Dude. they're paying him what? 300 million for one Crazy. Year. Crazy. If you want to get rich, million. don't become a banker. Just just train your kid. Okay, Messi's here now. It's going to level up MLS. But dude, you know yeah, what? Yeah. During this game, I noticed something pretty interesting. The ball that we were playing with in this game, when I was inspecting it, you know, for holes, and uh, if it was good enough to be at my level of playing. Or were you picking it up from the goal? <laughs> because I know you're, you've become, uh, for the audience out there who does not see Jed on a regular basis, he's, he's added some, you know, Heft, you know, so uh, I think he's probably the goalkeeper. That's classy, actually. I'm actually a forward and uh, a right mid. Yeah, depends. Depends on what I'm feeling. But what I noticed was, dude, when I picked up this ball was that the ball was made in Vietnam. Really interesting because a lot of the times, you know, I I don't know if you did this also growing up, Shikar, but I looked at all of my clothes all the time to see where it was made to see which ones were like good quality you know what i mean and that's just kind of become a thing you know you look at the back of your shirt just to see if it was made in china if it was made in italy you feel a little differently you know vietnam i've been seeing made in vietnam a lot more frequently dude like not just clothes not just shoes anymore yeah yeah you know like footballs that's that's kind of new right so what else is happening in the world, dude, of Vietnam? It's insane, dude. Like, uh, you know, I, I think we went through this phase where everything was made in India. And now we start seeing a little more like diversity True. in just where it's made from. Anyone who has a Puma uh, soccer ball or volleyball, that'll be made in like Bangladesh or Vietnam or you know, a lot of retail stores, you go to Banana Republic, almost everything is made in India, made in Vietnam. You know, so you're starting to see these names emerge. And what's what's so interesting is how manufacturing can be such a force for good and change, because Vietnam has emerged as this global manufacturing hub, right? And just think about how, you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was in a really bad position. So for them to like move from where they were, especially in the poverty levels to now, it's crazy to think that they are one of the largest hubs for electronic manufacturing. So how did that happen? How did like, we're talking about 40 year transformation. So much so president of the United States is in Vietnam right now. As we speak, Biden's actually visiting Vietnam, strategic partners. And that's what Vietnam has become because they are like the global manufacturing hub for like everything from your shoes and apparel to like furniture and high tech, high, high tech consumer products. Last 40 years has been crazy growth for Vietnam. And I think you know, a lot of what had happened in the last few years, something that I was I was doing my research on, on like how did Vietnam's economy all of a sudden get globally connected? You know, we're seeing stuff that's made in Vietnam all the time now, like we were talking about. And it turns out 
prior to becoming this open economy that we have today with actually significant foreign direct investment, Vietnam was kind of like a really closed economy, similar to how China was prior to um, Deng Xiaoping's plans, right, of putting in special economic zones. They enforced something called the doimoi, which is basically liberalizing trade um, for Vietnam. And it was really interesting because this wasn't like special economic zones in China where it's basically a, an experiment, right, in regions of the country. This one is countrywide. They realized that they needed to work with other nations to be able to build certain things. And so much so that it hasn't just been clothes anymore. It's not, it's not just, you know, shoes anymore that we're seeing out of Vietnam. Like Shikar just mentioned, we're seeing electronics come out of Vietnam, right? And that's not an easy feat, dude. Like the last two episodes that we had chatted about, we talked about Brazil and Mexico, right? And how Mexico has served as kind of like um, a source, another source of trade for the Americans after kind of trade relations between U.S. and China has been, you know, a little bit dodgy lately. And so Vietnam is one of those countries that are actually stepping in as well to provide some of this uh, manufacturing demand, not just the U.S., but globally. Most of Samsung's phones are made in Vietnam. It's insane. So the Galaxy, Crazy. you know, the latest with, with yeah. God knows how many pixels now the cameras are. There are like 10, 10 cameras on a phone now. So, <laughs> you know, those are being made and built in this country, right? And so you can't just overnight start producing these high-tech products. There needs to be a lot that goes into it. You know, firstly, your country needs to be stable right politically uh, economically it has to be stable uh, you need to have a good educated but growing workforce yeah dude it's it's a melange of things right like also at the same time you were talking about having a young workforce we're seeing issues like this across different types of countries where the workforce is aging where you know the support of the government kind of has to be a lot bigger as well with those social services for older folks and at the same time nobody's replacing the guys who are in the factories the guys who are working who keeps the economy running right the folks who are working and so it's very interesting that that Vietnam has these kind of mix of things that makes it such a perfect place for this type of growth not to mention like strategically their region is just filled with so many trade partnerships as well. And Vietnam has kind of like been one of the leaders of these partnerships. Like we could talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership that, you know, Trump was trying to pull out of during his presidency, right? Like that came into picture again when Trump, the Trump administration tried to pull out of that partnership that we had over there. And this point where there are a lot of, partnerships between Southeast Asian countries and Europeans or the West, really, where you reduce certain tariffs for these goods, right? That gives them a really good advantage on manufacturing because that's pretty much the agreements that they've had with countries like China for the longest time, right? So this elevates them in a way that they can trade with a lot of companies in these really massive economies. And ASEAN, I haven't even mentioned ASEAN. That's my country also, the Philippines, is part of uh, ASEAN. And 
it's one of those things where all of a sudden you have access to 600 million people. Geographically, it just makes sense for folks to partner up with where their supply chains already exist slash China. Yeah, on that, dude, like uh, I was reading about Samsung's decision to to actually choose Vietnam. And this was like 2008, 2009. And this was the, this was prior to the, you know, this whole globalization trend that we've been talking about in the last two, two episodes and near shoring where you, the U.S. has looked at near geographies and manufacturing hubs close to home, right? In this case, Samsung, back then, the, the terminology was China plus one. So you want to look <laughs> for great. a partner in addition to China that's going to help uh, just be an alternative, right? So Samsung invested late 2000s, right? So 2008, 2009, and now Vietnam's become like the hub for that company. Factory wages are almost half as that of China. While the quality is comparable in many sectors, that is very enticing for companies thinking, hey, we could probably get close to the efficiency and yields that we get in China uh, in a different location at uh, significantly lesser cost and um, risk, right? We are talking more about risk of disruption of that supply chain. So very interesting to see how Vietnam's competitive advantage is just uh, becoming all the more, um, like, it's plain to see, basically. No, really cool, really cool developments. And, you know, as what we've done in these previous episodes with these markets that have been really growing and in, in coming into the spotlight in the last few years, we looked at the tech scene. What's happening in the tech scene in Vietnam? A lot of interesting stuff as well, because as we mentioned earlier, a lot of manufacturing has been growing in Vietnam, right? So the level of skills of the workers are also growing, you know, because coming into the electronics manufacturing space, as Shaker mentioned, is not a joke. There's a lot of people who need to know a lot of things before you need to be able to do that in a country. You can't just pour billions of dollars into it. And what one such interesting story, I think, to us was uh, the Vin Group story. Um, and, you know, this is, it's a startup, right? It, it's not at all a startup. In fact, it, if you have lived in Vietnam before or know somebody who has, they're probably familiar with the company Vin Group because, dude, Vin Group is literally in everything. They're like some of those um, companies in the Philippines that own the malls, own the schools, own the universities. They got one for everything. And Vin Group is, is one of those. They are a real estate company that has grown so massive to be, their assets are like 5% of the GDP. Dude. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. This company is huge. It's huge. And, and one of the things that makes it interesting is they've tried an experiment in the last three years. Um, which is they wanted to become a tech company. This guy who was a real estate tycoon in Vietnam for the longest time, who ran this company, who ran Vin Group, wanted to create an electric vehicle company. Okay. He, he brands himself as the Elon Musk of Vietnam. Okay. That's his mm. whole, that's his whole branding. Okay. And although he's created like a lot of value 
for the Vietnamese economy with Vin Group. Electric vehicles is a different ballgame. They got all yeah, the money yeah. in the world, but that stuff is just, you know, remarkably complex. And so getting into complex, the tech space, supply chains, yeah, expensive. expensive. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and those things I think are are a huge challenge for anybody to get into the the EV space. I mean, the car space itself is so complex already. When you get to EVs, it's like, oh man, we gotta we gotta create whole new supply chains for this type of thing. So, you know, enough said, it's a complicated business to get into. But but Vin Group, within 24 months from the ground up, was able to build a company called VinFast, the EV company that they're getting into. And the remarkable piece for me in this VinFast story is, you know, it's it's been swinging a lot. The amazing thing that they've done is created an electric vehicle company from Vietnam who plans to sell to the U.S. market. I mean, how crazy is that, dude? How crazy do you have to be to compete with Tesla if you weren't like an incumbent? Think about how many competitors are in the EV market already. Ford, GM, uh, Tesla, Hyundai, Kia, um, luxury markets, um, Rivian. That's just me just, just walking through what I know in like three seconds, right? So imagine how many startups out there are fighting for the same pie, right? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it takes real courage now. Whether it'll last, that's tricky because they've listed only 1% of their shares for trading, just 1%. <laughs> the parent company still owns 99%. So just going by the stock surge is not something that I was really keen at looking because we see these you know, massive pumps and dumps the stock down like 50% in the last week. It's rising and falling and super volatile. But what's important to the, the important measure here is how many cars are they actually able to produce? Um, so which is interesting because, you know, this is a very small company, very new company. Um, they delivered 7,400 cars to, uh, this, this year, uh, sorry, last year. And this year, they're projecting 50,000 cars. So that is a more uh, real figure. It's uh, grounded in reality, right? Rather than the share price, uh, at least in the short term. So I think that's something, regardless of where this company ends up, I think it's very interesting to see that they are able to build a car. Think about all the companies that w announced that they want to build an EV, EV electric vehicle. And have not built it. Exactly. Right? Um, Dyson. Dyson comes to mind. <laughs> greatest Dyson. vacuum cleaners and dryers oh. and stuff. And they, they weren't able to do it. Apple's had their project, internal special project for an EV for the last 10 years, right? So like there are all these players who have not really acted on it. This company, Winfast, has. So let's see how it goes. But it's still interesting that they are ab their ambitions are global. You know, I think that's the step one where ambitions are global and we have the manufacturing base within Vietnam to potentially retool some of that into different other industries. You know, the brand of having a Japanese made car as well as a brand of having a German made car 
well, you yeah. know, maybe in 10 years, we'll have pride in buying something that was Vietnamese made, you know, and that that's interesting to us because these supply chains we've been watching since we started this show, right? And it was really particularly interesting because now that things are shifting post-pandemic and post-relationships uh, and geopolitical tensions, um, it's very interesting to see these countries come up to the plate and try and test their manufacturing might. We always have battery discussions on things have changed. And cattle, right? CATL. Right. This started off as a just a phone battery company. And now they are the largest producers of electric vehicle batteries. So maybe Winfast does not crack the EV market. Doesn't mean it's a failure because they could potentially pivot to, hey, we might just do the batteries, right? Uh, for the EVs, True. maybe the charging infrastructure. So like there are so many different ways that they could tackle it. Watching them emerge as a global player is very interesting. And one thing that's so that's so cool is how they are balancing between the US and China. Oh, that is the most interesting. They have good relationships. They have good relationships with both sides. And there are very few countries on that list. It is. It is. And I'll just echo one thing how they play on cultural alignment on China and how they play on supply chain alignment with the US is fascinating. See that in example all the time when I see news about Vietnam. So really cool stuff. One thing I'll just quickly point out there before we we close out here is that VinFast's model is pretty interesting too because they're they're copying some of the Chinese models where the battery isn't owned by you, you lease the battery. Therefore, they still own the batteries that they'll sell. And so mm. they own the maintenance, they own recycling. So I think that's a, actually a pretty big unlock um, for them. We don't know if it'll work in the US. It's worked in China very, very well. So be interesting to see what happens there. Also, the price point is this is mass consumer. This is not Tesla. They're not luxury car market. Like Their EVs are made for the average Joe. So that'll be an interesting thing to see in the US where EV is completely focused on larger market and how they'll pull off. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it all goes. Um, so as, as we draw this episode to a close, let's step back and just consider, you know, what we've unpacked. The ebb and flow of global economies, the intricate dance of trade and geopolitics, and the astounding potential of countries like Vietnam, Brazil, and Mexico. But our journey doesn't stop here, right? Really exciting stuff coming up next. On Things of Change podcast, we'll be turning our gaze to Nigeria. A nation brimming with youthful energy, rich resources, and one of the fastest growing tech scenes in Africa. Beyond its vibrant culture and music, Nigeria stands as a beacon of what the future might hold for African economies. I'm really excited for this next episode because this will be the first time we're really covering Africa after the Uganda episode we had with our very first guest on the show. So really excited for that stuff. And uh, as always, stay curious. The information and opinions expressed in this episode are for informational purposes only. 
and are not intended as financial, investment, or professional advice. Always consult with a qualified professional before making any decisions based on the content provided. Neither the podcast nor its creators are responsible for any actions taken as a result of listening to this episode.